Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennium Money Medical. My name's Dev Raga, and we've got a special guest on for us today. In this interview with Dr. Tyron March, who's a ICU registrar at the Royal Brisbane Hospital. Now, I came across Tyron because he put a post up on the Facebook forums about his book, where he's done a little bit of a small book about money investing, targeting uh, doctors. But when I actually read it, I sort of felt it was sort of targeting really any healthcare professional or any professional. So really honoured to have him today. Welcome, Tyron. Thanks for having me, Dev. Good to be here. So, Tyron, we'll sort of talk everything in this podcast, everything from your book to your life, about your training, about your views on health in Australia, and also what you think the future of finances is in Australia for healthcare workers. Now, we can't do this podcast without the support of Altus Financial. As a full-service financial advisory business, they can help you in many ways whether that be your requirements on general business advice, structuring and use of multiple entities for tax minimisation or asset protection purposes to protect you for the extra risk we take on as medical professionals or a sounding board on ideas you have on your business. Check out altersfinancial.com.au. Let's get started. Now, thanks for listening. If you have any specific questions uh, about any of the topics that we discussed today or in any of my episodes, don't hesitate to contact me by Facebook or Twitter. And don't forget the three aims of the channel, education, empowerment, and entertainment. So, Tyron, well, thanks very much for joining us. Um, you're the third guest on the show. I'm just sort of getting used to interviewing people. So, so bear with me. I'm probably not the best interviewer <laughs> in the world. Um, but um, it's really nice to have some guests and sort of talk about their experiences with money, uh, particularly healthcare workers. I guess my sort of question is, when did you start thinking about your financial future? And why do you think it's important, particularly for healthcare workers? Yeah, thanks. Thanks again for having me, Dev. It's, uh, it's an honour. Uh, I've been a very avid long-term listener to the podcast, and I think it's an absolutely wonderful resource that you've built. Uh, so, it's a real pleasure to be here today. Um, I think in terms of my financial future, uh, we we all have our own uh, upbringings uh, financially, I suppose. Uh, mine was no different. Um, when I think back to the salient uh, lessons that my parents taught me about finance. It was mostly to stay out of debt, which was a, a great starting point for me. Uh, however, it's a little bit tricky to square that when you're studying for as long as uh, we have to uh, often in healthcare and in all different types of healthcare degrees, uh, whether that's medical or people doing their masters. Uh, and so I think the the idea of having a, a forward looking plan for your financial future uh, came out of being a uni student for such a long period of time and looking forward to or having the opportunity to plan I suppose before I started earning an income. 
during my study period, the, the plan was to make as much income as I could just to make ends meet, uh, rent and bills and the like. Uh, and, and I had a number of jobs in university to, I suppose, try and meet those goals. Um, I think anyone who's been through that uh, remembers, you know, having to, to count your pennies, so to speak, and making sure that you're staying on top of all of your expenses. It's not exactly the high life, uh, but I think that was a really important thing to go through. Yeah, I mean, like one of the things, actually, I I, um, I used to, I don't do it anymore, but I was sort of a university lecturer for Monash Uni and also a Deakin Uni for School of Medicine. I used to take on students um, who would come on shift with me. And what was interesting, and, and it's been a while since I was a student, but medical students or any students, um, I was actually quite surprised, don't get much in the way of government support, which... I actually found quite fascinating, like like the medical students used to tell me how much, you know, our study or, you know, Centrelink payments that would be eligible for. It's not very much. Um, and, you know, if you're a student listening to this, whichever profession, medical, health sciences, whatever it is, it's pretty tough out there, Tyron. Would you absolutely. agree? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember, you know, Centrelink from memory uh, covered about $250 a fortnight, uh, which is a contribution, but it's barely enough to cover rent. Um, I was living on the Gold Coast at the time, and anyone who lives on the Gold Coast will attest to the fact that rent is a major expense. Uh, and so, I can remember it, I suppose, uh, the peak of it. I was, I was driving for Uber, uh, from a Thursday to a, a Saturday or Sunday night. Uh, I was tutoring at university, uh, and tutoring some high school students. And, and again, that was, that was to make ends meet. That wasn't necessarily for extra income. So it, it certainly is, it's a tricky thing to do. Uh, my heart goes out to those that are doing it at the moment, especially given how uh, much more expensive everything is getting at the moment. Uh, it, it, it is it is tricky, definitely. Well, I, I'm not sure if you follow much of the US political news at the moment, but there's there's a hoo-ha about the US student debt relief. I think um, uh, at the moment they're, they're trying to, or maybe they've passed a bill where they give away, uh, you know, they forego $10,000 worth of student debt. You know, in the scheme of things uh, where their student debt crisis is significantly worse than ours, that's not very much. I just think, um, and, and this is me slightly getting a little bit political, I just think education shouldn't be expensive. Um, I think education is one of those things as close to human rights as it gets. Um, and I, it just pains me to, to, to you know, hear what you said and, and also all the experiences of students around Australia where it's quite tough for them to get that education, cost of living pressures, help debt rising. I think this year it rose by 3.9% because of inflation. And I think, you know, we need to do a little bit better as a society. And and being doctors, I think we are, you know, obviously members of society, we have an important responsibility for health. But I think we need to start talking about other things apart from health. And one of the things is, you know, how can we help um, as members of society to make things a little bit easier for our next generation of doctors and nurses and healthcare workers. Um, and uh, if, if you're a student listening out there, we, we hear you. And I think it's really important that um, you get the education that you very much deserve. So you wrote a book. And uh, in fact, that's how we sort of got in contact. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think you posted it on the Facebook forums and I'd contacted you and we've been in touch for a few months. And the book is about money. And two questions. You're not anonymous, so you're slightly different to me. So you're one step ahead of me. Uh, I am anonymous and Deb Raga is not my real name. So why didn't you write a book anonymously? And why actually write a book about money being a doctor? Because it doesn't, I mean, the optics of it in public perception is, you know, doctors make a lot of money, they're wealthy. 
And here you are writing a book about money for doctors or other healthcare workers. Yeah, it's it's something that I, I had to think about, I suppose, when I, when I wrote the book uh, about how it would come across and certainly the optics of it. I think the caveat that I would make is that, you know, being a, being a healthcare professional, and again, whether you're in nursing or in medicine, you, you're someone who is likely to have a, a lifetime of an income source, uh, particularly when it comes to doctors that can reliably appreciate in size uh, nearly every year for, for some people. That, to me, is not enough necessarily to become a, a an individual that generates wealth necessarily. I think we can all think of people we know uh, that perhaps earn more money than we do, but perhaps aren't as savvy with it either and, and you know, give in to things like lifestyle creep. The, the reason for writing the book was more so about putting a structure or, or giving an introductory structure to people who maybe haven't earned an income before, maybe are considering their finances for the first time, and maybe don't have the time or necessarily the interest uh, to research widely or, or, or broadly uh, or book an appointment uh, with an accountant or a financial advisor, which as a side note, you absolutely should. And I think that's essential uh, when you start out to, to, to do that. So I think in terms of why I wrote the book, I mean, I've always enjoyed writing. Uh, I've got a, a notes section on my phone with book prompts. None of them are related to financial advice or, or financial investing. Uh, but, but this particular book was, was born out of discussions with my colleagues, essentially, uh, including senior ones that were time poor, they have a good cash flow, and a lot of them had very strongly held convictions, which I, I thought was very interesting. Things like saying the stock market is far too risky uh, or, or cryptocurrency is going to make me rich. I just know it. Uh, or that, you know, if you're going to invest, it's houses or it's nothing. And I think there, you know, there's lots of books on personal finance, but I didn't find many that were targeted to the market of healthcare workers. And I think that's a specific cohort to speak to. Uh, in terms of the, the actual mechanics of how I wrote the book, my, my partner got COVID and I was locked down for a week. Uh, so I figured that was the best time to, to do it and to get started. And so essentially I wrote the book as, uh, you know, this is the book that I wish I had when I became an intern. And so that's why it's addressed to an intern in the first chapter. But really, I think it's applicable to anyone who's a new income earner. Great. And how long did it actually take you to write the book? Uh, the crux of it I wrote in that week of lockdown. Uh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was, there was a number of months after that spent editing the book. Uh, the graphics my partner and I made ourselves and then obviously sending it out to friends and family and getting their impressions and then making changes. So that took another couple of months, but certainly the, the, the bulk of the book I, I wrote in that, in that week. And sorry- we will put a, a link in the show notes for those of you that are interested in buying the book. Um, uh, it's called Money MD. Is that right? The book's called Medical Money. Um, medical Money. Yep. Yeah, Medical Money, a practical guide to personal finance and investing for the junior doctor. Um, the Money MD was that that was a name, I suppose, to publish under uh, and to, to buy a website under. Right. Yeah. And just to be clear, this is, I mean, I've read the book. And congratulations on that. It's very well written. It's very easy to read. Uh, just to be clear, it's not just for doctors because when I read it, a lot of the stuff is applicable to pretty much any profession. Uh, maybe a couple of quirks for healthcare workers and it can be nurses, allied healthcare workers, pharmacists, etc. Um, so would that be fair to say that really it is for anyone that's interested in money? 
Absolutely. And, and, I, and this is one of the things I think about, you know, if I had my time again, what would I do differently? And that's something that I did think about is would I, would I perhaps address this to a wider audience? I think then you're running into the fact that there's, as I said, there's a lot of books on personal finance out there. And I, I, you know, I, I think the Barefoot Investor, for example, is a great general book for everyone. But, but you're right. Uh, in in the book that I've written, uh, I think that there are core principles and key principles that are applicable to a large range of people. Uh, doctors have traits that make it convenient to write to in the sense that, uh, you know, they have steady career progression generally, uh, a steady income, again, that, that increases with time. And so to to provide practical examples on uh, personal finance concepts is, I suppose, a little bit easier compared to, you know, I, I think about if I read this book when I was a university student and I was working three casualized jobs, would I have gotten as much out of it? I'm not so sure, but the concepts are universal, you know, things like allocate your money have an emergency fund and build fun into your budget. All of those things are, uh, you know, not unique to uh, a doctor or a healthcare worker. So I definitely think that there's there's, there's something in this book for everyone. Uh, I obviously just in the way that I have written it, have written it particularly earlier on in the book as a conversational piece between myself and a, and a healthcare worker. Great. And one of the things that struck me when I read this book was that um, it really reminded me of reading my Oxford textbook of medicine or surgery. Now, uh, I mean, I've, you know, left medical school a while ago, but, you know, the Oxford series, which I'm sure they still publish, I mean, I'd be really surprised if they don't. Would I be accurate? Yep. It is is one of the best series written um, for medical students and also junior doctors and even some senior doctors. And your book, the way it's structured, the size of it, the concise nature of it, it's, it's uh, you know, as, as one of my listeners said, Dev, your podcasts are no fluff. I think your book is also no fluff. You don't waste too much space, you know, fluffing around concepts. You get straight to the point. And it really did remind me of when I was a med student carrying that Oxford book of medicine in my hand and just using it as a reference. Was that intentional? Because a book is smaller than your average book. I think being concise and being succinct and keeping to practical applications and topics was a really important thing for me. Uh, that was probably brought out of having some of these discussions in person. And I, I think there's the, the, the eye glazing uh, factor of any of these discussions where you can talk to someone about a concept until their eyes glaze over. And that's probably when, you know, you've, you've lost their interest or you've perhaps gone into a depth that's not really necessary to get the key point across. So I think writing the book, it was about what are the key things I think that people should know about these areas? Uh, what are the practical steps they should take if they want to learn more about it, or if they want to involve themselves in a particular area of investment? And I suppose anything longer than that, I just tried to point people to other references, because there are so many out there that just having a, you know, I think the last page or t- towards the back of the book, there is a list of resources, of books, of podcasts, of websites that I recommend that people check out if they want to learn more. So, saying succinct, keeping practical, but also pointing people to where they can find out more was was a key, uh, I suppose, uh, point in writing the book. Yeah. I, I, and, you know, for time poor healthcare workers, I mean, I, I read this book in like, I think a couple of hours um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and sort of reread parts of it. Uh, you know, because I think you'd ask for some feedback. And uh, yeah, just so easy to do. And for healthcare workers that are poor in time, um, this is quite ideal. Have you faced any criticism about writing this book? Um, you know, being a doctor and writing writing about money, not being anonymous, working at a big tertiary centre um, in Queensland, you know, there's, there's a, and, and also 
you're not a consultant, you're a training doctor. So um, my understanding, if, if I may mention in the podcast and I have got consent for, for Tyron, uh, you're in your 20s, uh, mid-20s. So it was risky manoeuvre. Have you had any backlash? Yeah. Uh, look, I wouldn't say backlash. I think constructive criticism again, early on in the process was something that I sought out. So involving my colleagues and my family, I've got to say, um, you know, the most, the most uh, feedback I got on the book uh, was probably from my own mother, uh, which was really helpful, uh, especially getting, you know, my mum doesn't work in, in the medical industry or, or healthcare. So getting that, uh, that view on the book was really helpful. Uh, there, you know, there is a risk whenever you, whenever you create, uh, something, whether it's a piece of art or, or, or something that you've written, that people will disagree with what you've written. They won't like with, won't like what you've written. And so I'm open to that. I think one of the key issues or, or niche, niches, I suppose, that I identified early on in the process was that a lot of the, personal finance, particularly uh, for medical workers. If you think at what, you know, what are financial advising firms pitching towards? What are accountants pitching towards? A lot of the time it is consultants. A lot of the time it is, you know, specialists, private specialists, uh, clinic owners. I didn't find a lot of resources out there that were dedicated or, or, or targeted towards junior members of the healthcare profession. And I think we have to remember that particularly when it comes to things like investing, a lot of the gains that you can make depend on how early you get started. And I think that just waiting until you are a consultant to start thinking about these things or applying some of these concepts really leads to a massive opportunity cost. And so again, you know, I've written, well, the tagline of the book is, is for the junior doctor, uh, which, you know, could be expanded to the junior healthcare worker, but I think it was important to write for that group specifically. I think that's that's a really important point because I speak to a lot of people, mainly consultants. Um, I do speak to a few junior doctors who do contact me. And look, a lot of the senior doctors that I speak to have not thought about their investments, uh, debt structuring, tax structuring, um, their personal finances, even insurance. Mm. Um, mm. And I think you're spot on where you need to think about these things. And if you're listening, if you're a med student, nursing student, if you're a graduate nurse, if you're a graduate physiopharmacist, you've got to take that on board and really think about you know, how are you going to structure your investments, get into habits really early? Because as I say to people, it's very hard to teach a 45-year-old healthcare worker who's never brushed their teeth to brush their teeth three times a day after a meal. You've got to start doing that when you're young. And as healthcare workers, um, we understand how difficult it is to change behaviours. In fact, that is really one of our core business, changing behaviours. If Absolutely. I don't change behaviour, it's a very good chance that I'm going to end up on... Uh, uh, um, Tyron's ICU bed because, I mean, let's face it, people end up there um, because of unfortunate incidents, but a lot of it can be lifestyle related, whether it be heart attacks or strokes or whatever. So, changing behaviours is really important. Um, Absolutely. That's, that's that's a repeated repeated thing that I come across. And I think as well, it's about encouraging good habits. And, you know, if I could pick the, the perfect cohort, I suppose, to read this book, it would be people that are about to start their job reading it the week before they start. That would be the best time in my mind to really wrap your head around some of these concepts. And that's because I, I think, again, we, I know that you've mentioned on your podcast as well, the concept of lifestyle creep is is so enticing when you start working and when you start earning an income. And I think 
to be informed and to balance that with an understanding of the importance of setting up some of these things early is is really important. Uh, and, and you're right, you know, you do see amongst senior clinicians uh, that they haven't necessarily taken the time to consider some of these concepts. And I, I'm really appreciative uh, in particular of, I can think of two or three uh, consultants of mine that have read the book and, and gave some wonderful feedback. And, and I, I hope or, or they'd said, you know, that they, they themselves had gotten something out of, of reading the book. So I, you know, I think the, the importance of starting early and developing good habits can't really be understated when you're, when you're faced with something like uh, compound growth, which, you know, the only independent variable you can really play with there is time and how early you start. Yeah. Non-renewable resource. Um, Spot on. Here's a question for you. Left wing, um, you know, Mm -hmm. out of the blue. Um, Supposing you were a surgical registrar writing a book like this, Mm. um, granted that you probably where would I find time. the time, Dev? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, during your shifts while you're operating, managing your interns, come on, you know, <laughs> while, you're, while you're suturing. Um, uh, do you think the backlash or do you think the criticism might have been different? Because time and time again, when I speak to junior doctors, um, you know, various specialties are in different you know, sectors in terms of income potential, mm, uh, mm. in terms of their view of the world, in terms of the view of finances. Mm. Uh, I'm just curious from your perspective. Um, I mean, you're an ICU registrar. Um, mm-hmm. ICU is uh, is one of the specialties. Would it have been different in any other specialty, particularly surgery? It's a good question. I think, again, the, the availability and the time with which I, I may have had to write the book uh, May not have been there if you were, you know, doing the the, the hours that some of my uh, my friends doing surgical registrar jobs are doing. I think the the mindset doesn't necessarily change just because of the medical specialty that you're working in. You know, these these concepts, as I said, are universal. It doesn't matter if you're a surgeon or an intensivist or an occupational therapist or a social worker. In terms of support from uh, my colleagues. You know, I think of some of my, my uh, again, my friends that are looking at applying to surgical programs, and it's incredibly rigorous. Uh, There's a lot about uh, profile building, uh, CV building, research, and your relationships with your uh, senior uh, referees in particular. You know, I can, I can foresee a situation where maybe something I had written uh, would be contradictory to the thoughts of one of my senior references, uh, and that could potentially be an issue, mm. but, but I've got to say the support that I've had from from my colleagues and particularly my senior colleagues that have read the book, I've, I've been really, um, really lucky to have actually that, that kind of feedback. Yeah. And, and look, you know, the, the, probably the biggest group of people that I speak to after starting my podcast are actually surgeons. Mm. Um, and what's fascinating about it is it's the opportunity cost because they're so busy. They're working mm-hmm. so hard. Uh, you know, it's not unusual, you know, to work uh, for, for people that are non-medical. Uh, for a surgical registrar, not unusual to work, you know, 80 to 100 hours a week. Uh, that's mm. pretty standard. Not unusual to be on call, um, you know, three days at a time, sometimes a week at a time, particularly in the country, um, and definitely 24 hours at a time. Mm. So they're very time poor and they go through all this training and surgical training is at least five to 10 years, depending on whether you want to do overseas fellowship, whatever. Mm-hmm. And they've finished all this and they come out of it and they make a lot of money, but they've kind of wasted their five to 10 years of time. And um, as Tyron was just saying before, opportunity cost, that is your biggest uh, risk um, as a surgical registrar. So what's interesting is my sort of discussions with them 
is that because their training time is quite significant, they end up with often with less wealth at the start of their consultancy than another specialist trainee that's just finished and who's been doing the same thing for the last sort of five years or so, um, which I thought was quite interesting. And I think it's important not to not to necessarily understate the importance of starting early as well is, you know, if you look at a 40 or 50 year investing period, the, the majority of those gains that you're going to make are based on the, the amount of money you've invested in the first 10 years. So delaying your, your starting time, if you will, for by 10 years or, uh, you know, a common thing that I've heard is I'll just wait until I'm a consultant and then I'll have more than enough money. I won't know what to, what to do with and I'll, you know, I'll invest then. You're really not uh, taking advantage of of the time factor, uh, and so again, I, I think that's why it's important that people get started early. Uh, you know, I- interns, regardless of whether or not they want to be a surgeon in the future, probably do have the time to to look at some of these things and and get started early. Absolutely, um, and guess what happens at the age of late thirties or early forties when you do become a surgeon? Life happens. You start having kids, mm-hmm. and um, you know, your financial future is sort of on the back burner a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the next phase of life happens and more delays, which uh, which is a huge risk. Mm. Now, having said that, um, I have criticised your book. Uh, I have sent you that criticism. Uh, and thank you very much for taking on that criticism because, mm-hmm. you know, there's no point patting everyone on the back and saying, well done, you've <laughs> done really well. Uh, certainly that doesn't happen in medicine. Um, no. Uh, in your book, um, you focus you know, a fair bit on cryptocurrency mm-hmm. uh, rather than superannuation. That kind of took me by surprise. Yep. Um, of course, you're in your mid-20s, you know, budding ICU specialist. Um, yep. And was that intentional or if you had a second chance, would you have done it differently or I'm just curious? Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. Uh, absolutely, it was intentional. I think to, to give a little bit of context again, when around this time I was writing the book, uh, crypto was going through another one of its booms. And when it does that, it makes the news. You know, your auntie starts talking about it. Your cousins are investing in it. And at work, I was seeing, again, at times senior colleagues talking about cryptocurrency and how do I get involved and should I invest in this? And, you know, I had a friend who put $100 in it and they're now, you know, made $500,000. Were they doing that uh, while they're trying to uh, float a swan gans in? Hopefully not. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no. I, <laughs> I don't know how often a, a swan gans is being floated in anymore. <laughs> <laughs> while they're chucking in that CBC and art line, hey, 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 Tyron. <laughs> Just wondering, I, what do you think about BTC? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was more so when they were getting called in at three o'clock in the morning and thinking of how can I, you know, get out of this career? Uh, maybe I'll, I'll get rich on crypto. Uh, so, so I think in the in the context of of that time period, uh, you know, I, I've I have had some interest in cryptocurrency uh, since 2016. I had a little bit of experience around, you know, how do you get started? How do you do this safely? And also, you know, I think if you go back uh, five or or so years, really when there were fewer cryptocurrencies around, people took a little bit more time to actually learn about, you know, what is Bitcoin and what is Ethereum? What are their use cases necessarily? And and I say in the book, you know, I'm agnostic about cryptocurrency. I think that the technology is amazing it's it's revolutionary for for the goals that it's trying to fix but i think you know the other end of the spectrum are people saying that bitcoin is is going to replace the financial system as we know it and i'm not so sure but what i do think is that there is a danger at people getting involved in things like this without having some form of understanding 
about what crypto is. Uh, and that was one of the things I wanted to address in the book. So, you know, I think uh, Dogecoin or Dogecoin is a good example. Uh, that was a coin that was made as a bit of a laugh, really. Uh, it, it prints, a, you know, a billion coins a day. And so no matter how much you own, your value is reliably going to go down. But Elon Musk tweets about it and a heap of people become millionaires for holding it. And suddenly people want to invest in it. But the underlying concept of the coin hasn't changed in that you're almost guaranteed to lose value. And I think I'm sure we can all think of someone who uh, perhaps jumped at the hype of crypto investing. And so the book was more so to provide a, you know, a bit of foundational knowledge about the topic. Uh, and, and to say, look, if you want to do this, these are the things that I would recommend you keep in mind while doing it. And this is how you do it safely. Um, yeah, I think had you written a book without crypto in it, I think you would have been roasted. <laughs> so you had to have you had to have it. Um, so I agree. I think the thing is, whatever the good or bad investment it is, whether it's a really bad investment, it's terrible. I think people still need to know about it, uh, mm-hmm. and by knowing about it, they can protect themselves about it. Uh, I'm not saying crypto is bad or good or whatever. Yep. You need to know about it. Um, you can't just you know close your eyes and pretend that crypto is going to go away tomorrow. The way I see crypto is. Maybe the more and more I think about it, I agree. I think the technology is really important. It's got a lot of other uses apart from the financial industry. It's essentially, you know, um, a data storage. Um, it sort of reminds me of what happened in the 70s with Richard Nixon in the US, how they the US dollar was kind of aligned to the value of gold. Um, and basically, stagflation happened and it was a great opportunity for Nixon to sort of say, yeah, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to detach that. I'm going to, you know not peg it against the dollar or whatever. So away went the Bretton Woods system and basically the fiat system was born after that. And and this may be so the starting of that where basically the currency as we know it, the Oz dollar or US dollar, whatever it is, you know, gets detached from the value of cryptocurrency uh, as a reference point at some point in the future. And, and I see us heading towards that. Um, I do have cryptocurrency in my portfolio, but I calculated it. It's like 0.02% of my total net worth. Um, So uh, I don't put much money in it at all, if any, um, in the last sort of eight months. But but I found it really interesting. One thing that crypto has done is it has has introduced people who maybe otherwise wouldn't have gotten into investing. It's got them thinking about, you know, buying an asset with the potential for growth. I think that's the the other side of the coin, though, is that you'll have people that are more than willing to throw 500 or a 1000 or $5,000 into cryptocurrency without really knowing much about it. But then you'll say to them, you know, have you thought about buying something on the stock market? And immediately you'll hear, oh, no, 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 the stock market's far, far too risky. Mm. Uh, and I, I found that a really, really interesting comparison uh, between the two. Um, That's right. Or, yeah. or to, you know, to go to your original question about, about uh, superannuation, that is something that is fundamental to the, to your wealth creation throughout your career. And I would argue that there's some people that probably know more about cryptocurrency than they do about their own superannuation. Um, and, and, you know, you're right in the book, uh, the, the name or well, the chapter, I suppose, is superannuation is super boring, but super essential. <laughs> and, and I, and, and it's a brief chapter. And the reason for that is, again, I think there's a number of wonderful resources around superannuation. Your, your podcast series in particular, I thought was absolutely fantastic. And I'd direct anyone uh, who is interested uh, to, to have a look at that. Um, but, but I think it's this really interesting thing with cryptocurrency where there's something about it that draws people in, makes them take a dive uh, rather than uh, other more traditional forms of investing that are 
far more likely to lead to positive outcomes over the long, you know, the long term. That's right. And having those foundations is important. Um, the second criticism, <laughs> mm-hmm. so uh, is that I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think you had a chapter about personal insurance um, no. in your book uh, at all. Is that because there's another book coming or? Oh, well, everyone loves a sequel uh, and, you know, COVID reinfections are occurring now. So, if my <laughs> if, if my partner's unlucky enough to get it again, maybe I'll have the time. Um, talk, about a, talk about a pandemic <laughs> sequel. Um, no, look, I, I think, uh, you know, ultimately there's there were lots of areas that, that I would like to focus on and that I could focus on. You know, things come to mind like um, a- asset protection and tax efficiency uh, using uh, trust structures, for example. I think that's a really important thing for uh, people to get their head around, again, early on in their career. Uh, insurance of all forms, whether it's personal insurance, pet insurance or home and contents, uh, things like debt recycling uh, or, you know, even concepts like investing on your child's behalf, which I know is that's quite a common question that, that I think you and I have seen pop up, particularly on the Facebook forums. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's lots of areas to talk about, but ultimately, you know, the book was written as a, as a it's a practical text. It's small, it's succinct, and it gives examples. And I think, you know, if I had to order uh, or put in order the important things that I would hope a new intern would look at regarding their finances, um, you know, their budget, getting out of debt and getting started with investing uh, rank highly for me. Uh, and there are, again, other resources out there that I would point people towards your podcast included for things like uh, personal insurance, uh, superannuation, or some of those other things that I've mentioned. Uh, but look, you know, I, I enjoyed writing the first book, so we'll uh, we'll have to wait and see. Probably after I've, I've sat my primary exam, I'll, I'll have a bit more time and, and may well have another crack at it. Just wondering about the ICU training, actually, and we're sort of going deviating a little bit. Sure. Um, I don't know much about ICU training. Uh, perhaps for our listeners, um, we've got you know thousands of listeners from medical students to nursing students to mm-hmm. allied health workers to consultant fellows, surgeons, etc. And in fact, I spoke to an ICU consultant just yesterday. Uh, just. Mm-hmm. They wanted a, um, you know, life advice, so to speak. Mm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what it involves to become an ICU doctor or ICU specialist? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it's the ICU college or the College of Intensive Care Medicine, uh, we call it Sikkim, uh, is a relatively new college in the scheme of things. I think they've been around since 2010. I may well get corrected wow, for that. Wow, really? <laughs> um, That's yeah, really interesting. It, it, Right. Yeah. So it's 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 a newer college in that regard. Okay. Um, in terms of the training, there is a number of barrier exams. So there's two: part one and and, and part two that you need to complete. Your training time is dependent or, or counts depending on which of those exams that you've sat. So, for example. Uh, Anyone who wants to be an intensive care doctor needs to do at least six months of what is called foundational training. So realistically, that's six months in an ICU, uh, either as a senior house officer uh, or as a uh, principal or a PHO or registrar type role. You then apply to the college. There is a number of terms that are non-ICU, what they call non-core training. So you need to do 12 months of anaesthetics. You need to do 12 months of medicine, which is broken up into at least six months of acute medicine, which might be emergency medicine, or it might be cardiology or acute general medicine. And you need to do six months of longitudinal medicine, which might be things like uh, palliative care, for example, um, 
before you can start ticking off your ICU time as a trainee, you need to have completed the part one exam, which is a basic sciences exam. And that's what I'm studying now. And, and I think like lots of colleges, uh, it's one of those exams that we, we say is, a, you know, it's a thousand hour exam. You need to study for a thousand hours for you to expect to pass it. Um, and the pass rate, I think, sits around anywhere around 50%. Uh, so it's, mm. it's a difficult exam. Once you have cleared that exam, and that, that consists of a, a written paper with multi-choice and, and written answer questions and a viva as well, or a small station-based uh, examination, uh, you can then start ticking off your core time as an ICU trainee. And so you do two years of that, uh, which has to include things like some pediatrics time, some uh, neuro ICU time, some cardiac ICU time, and then you can sit your fellowship exam there's a couple of other caveats around there. You need you need to complete a formal project as part of your training as well, which can uh, certainly be a, a time-limiting step for people, particularly towards the back end of their training. Uh, and then once you have passed your fellowship exam, they have a transition year, which is built around supporting you as you step into a role as a, as a junior consultant. Uh, so all in all, you know, it's quoted at around six years uh, of, of total training time. Um, some people take longer, particularly if they do things like, you know, ECMO fellowships or, or uh, fellowships in other areas pertinent to ICU. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think that's probably a, the best, the briefest rundown I can sure. give it. So, uh, so those core rotations are basically your sort of, you know, pre-dedicated ICU training, so to speak, yes. in the sense that you get into training and you've got to do those core rotations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you, to, to get into ICU training, is there a entrance exam or written exam to do that or is it an application or how does that work? So it's an application. Uh, they're bringing, or, or I think this year is the first year they're trialling a situational judgment assessment. Uh, they haven't confirmed whether or not that will form part of the application further down the line. So at the moment it's a structured CV plus it's references from uh, two uh, intensivists and one senior ICU nurse, which I think is a fantastic idea. Mm. Uh, that was certainly, uh, I think that's a wonderful part of the application process is getting kind of that 3D picture of your own abilities by getting other uh, members of the team involved. Uh, so that was something that I thought was was great in the application process. Okay. And then you do that couple of years of basic stuff and then- mm-hmm you go on to do actual intensive care, Mm. sort of two years of that. Mm -hmm. And then there's an exit exam. Yes. Um, And then you pass the exit exam. And then if you wanted to do other training like ECMO or anything like that, how many years is that? Like if you wanted to do, you know, cardiac uh, intensive care or neuro intensive care or ECMO intensive care or... Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So I suppose the majority of Australian ICUs are what we call general closed ICUs. So it's a bit different to what they do in the United States, for example, where you have a, a dedicated cardiac ICU, a dedicated neuro ICU, and then a, you know, a, a medical and a surgical ICU. <clears throat> so it's, it's not quite like that here. So your fellowships you can do at different centres that specialise in that area. For example, you can do an ECMO fellowship at uh, the Prince Alfred or you can do it at uh, the Prince Charles Hospital. Um, That usually is around another year of training, uh, sometimes longer. And that's to, I suppose, upskill in that particular area of study that you can then take back to a general ICU. Right. Okay. So I'm sort of doing some basic numbers here. So let's say five or six years of med school, okay, Um, Mm -hmm. at the age of 18, let's say, or if you did postgrad, you're looking at about seven years, mm-hmm. plus another year of internship, 
plus maybe a year of residency, um, plus another five years of ICU. So you're sort of racking up, you know, nine plus another sort of 13, 14 years before you become a consultant plus ECMO. Mm. So mm. for non-medical people listening to this, you know, or even um, non-healthcare workers, um, that's that's a fair training program mm. to become an ICU specialist and rightly so. I mean, I mean yeah. you, you guys are, you know, really at the forefront uh, of, uh, you know, really, really sick people. And coming back to what you said, um, Taryn, earlier about if you don't start investing at the start of that journey, you can easily be in your late 30s potentially uh, with literally nothing uh, uh, assigned to your name from a net worth perspective. So that hopefully that gives a bit of perspective uh, for, you know, doctors that are non-ICU. For example, I, I actually didn't know that ICU training was that long. Mm. Um, so, uh, I, I was sort of thinking maybe four, maybe five years. Um, but really you can really extend it to sort of five to seven years from what you're, what you're saying, which is, which is significant. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And, and people go on to dual train as well, uh, which, which yeah. adds extra time. Is that, is that when you do ICU anesthetics or ICU ED? I mean, you can, you can uh, pair it with any college, really. Um, the, the most common would be anaesthetics. I, just, I, I should say the most common in my experience uh, is that people have been dual training in anaesthetics uh, and ICU. Uh, but that, that does add another, you know, probably three or four years of training. Right. Yeah. And to be honest, from a strategic point of view, if I was doing ICU training, if I wanted to pair something, I would pair it with anaesthetics. Um, mm. You know, that, that would be the nice complemental thing from a... Um, income generating potential from job opportunities potential from breadth of you know uh, patients perspective um, you know public versus private opportunities you know that that would be the logical combination mm. if you're after personal financial advice don't get it from a podcast if you would like help based on your own personal situation head over to sortyourmoneyout.com click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors our panel of advisors mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over australia so they can connect with you wherever you are that's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome back. And just another shout out to Altus Financial for getting behind my Millennium Money Medical. We can't do this without them. Whether you're established in your career with a solid income and looking for next steps, or you're after advice about buying into, selling, or opening your first practice, Altus Financial can help. Altus is offering a complimentary 15-minute chat for anyone who wants to discuss their scenario with their professional team. Click the link in the show notes for more information. Mm. Now, 
The other thing about uh, about you, Tyron, is that you actually own a side business. And I think you, you were telling me that you started this when you were in med school. And I think it's called, is it called Med Kit Scrubs? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Is it your own business? Uh, is it in partnership with some of your colleagues? Uh, yeah, so so MedKit was uh, something I started in at the end of 2017. So I was going into my third year of medical school and was sent uh, to on what they called at the time uh, a long look program, which was a program that Griffith University did, <clears throat> where they send people out uh, to a rural area for 12 months to train in rural hospitals, uh, which was a brilliant, brilliant program. I, I think I learnt more in that one year of medical school uh, than I did in the other four combined. The downside to that was that I still had bills to pay. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I was working three or four jobs. And so moving rurally, it was, you know, I wasn't able to continue driving for Uber, for example, or, uh, or tutoring, uh, the, the same school students that I'd been tutoring. So I needed an income stream that I could, uh, use whilst I was studying and working in the hospital, uh, essentially full time. And one niche that I had identified is economy scrubs, I suppose is the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. So people that need scrubs for one term in the, in the emergency department uh, or something that was particularly popular at my medical school, which was scrub crawls, uh, a bit of a, you know, a pub crawl in scrubs. Uh, and if you look at the market for scrubs, particularly with companies like Figs today, uh, you know, a set of scrubs will cost you $130 which is not what you want to spend to wear them and then go to the pub and drink with your mates. So MedKit Scrubs was built around offering a, an economy scrub option uh, for people that you know need scrubs for a shorter period of time. Uh, I learnt a lot building that company or building that business, I should say. Um, you know, I, I had to use a portion of the money that I did have and I actually had a, a personal loan at the time like a lot of medical students do uh, and I had to use some of that money to bootstrap the business, which was very risky. But I learned a lot about, you know, how do you arrange uh, importing? How do you build a website? You know, how do you actually practically do customer service, which is particularly tricky when you're, you know, you're working most of the waking hours of the day. Uh, and that's that's a business that's continued. Um, you know, I I still supply I think the majority of medical schools uh, now with with their scrubs, uh, some veterinary schools as well. Uh, and again, people that are looking to do you know a, a term of ED or a term of ICU and and don't want to spend you know one hundred and thirty dollars on a set of scrubs times five, for example. Um, mm. I, I think it's a, it's a good option in that regard. Yeah, I think I think the I think people wearing scrubs uh, is becoming more and more common, even in non-surgical specialties. Mm. Um, you know, traditionally when I was training, um, I did a fair bit of surgical training. Um, you know, I'd rock up to ED and I'd be one of the few that would be wearing scrubs uh, mm. and immediately, instantly recognisable as the surgical registrar uh, that comes in and sees patients. But I think nowadays it's much more common for all other specialties to join in. You know, I, I've seen um, GP practices. Um, incorporating scrubs into their yeah. into their uniform and I think it's I think it's good because it's easily identifiable um, and um, you know you don't have to carry germs home uh, mm-hmm. and uh, laundry is deductible from a tax yep. perspective and I think it's um, it's professional and you can personalize it um, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of advantages to it and I, and I see a real opportunity for your business to grow in Australia. Overseas, in North American markets, scrubs are very common in hospital and non-hospital settings. Mm. Um, In Australia, it seems to be mainly in the hospital settings. 
but uh, I can see an opportunity for that growth. So we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes uh, if anyone's interested in buying uh, kit scrubs as well. Um, and, you know, they're pretty reasonably priced, um, which uh, and having a side hustle is fantastic. Um, I actually had a side hustle during my med school. Back then, eBay was pretty big and uh, all I did was drop shipping. So basically just uh, bought stuff overseas, uh, particularly from China, uh, electronics, um, clothing, and just drop ship straight to the uh, individual. Relatively easy business to do, provided you had good stable supply and good quality. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the main thing. And uh, and that worked out reasonably well. And it's a side hustle, you know, pays for the uh, weekend getaways and nightlife and all that sort of stuff. So that that's fantastic. And it's nice that you've done that. And that's really important. Yeah. Now you're 27, is that right? Uh, 26, 27 in 26. September. So, you know, um, very young. So, and you've caught on to this very young, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. What do you think are good qualities for a doctor? So I, I think doctors as a profession have a lot of readily identifiable traits that I suppose are common to, to uh, all of us or, or that the public would expect from all of their doctors. Things like, you know, they expect us to be knowledgeable, um, to have a, a patient first approach. Uh, to some extent, there is an expectation that doctors uh, and, and all healthcare staff uh, are a little self-sacrificing, you know. We you you work for a lack of breaks at times. Um, particularly, you think of in the GP scenario, an expectation to bulk bill, or um, again shift work in hospitals. So I think that's that's common to all doctors, and I would see that as par for the profession, so to say. But I, I think the things that make a doctor excellent has less to do necessarily with their clinical acumen because we would expect that or you would hope uh, that, for example, all all qualified cardiologists uh, can manage a cardiovascular illness. Um, I think it has more to do with people's communication and their interpersonal skills. And I think that's what makes someone an an excellent doctor. And, And certainly when I reflect on the senior clinicians that I've worked with, those that I thought were truly brilliant were those that were the best communicators, were the most empathetic, were able to communicate effectively, not only with patients and their families, but with other teams as well. Uh, and I remember back to my one of my early orientations, uh, there was a, a video they played at the Gold Coast University Hospital, and there's a quote in that video that says, you know, um, it, it was referring to patients, and it says, they may forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. And I think that's something that really stuck with me. Now, you know, that's something that's particularly applicable in an ICU environment where often we're guiding people through some of the worst days of their lives. And again, I, I think what makes a doctor excellent in my mind is is how they manage those uh, what are referred to as soft skills, uh, which, which I think maybe isn't the best way to refer to them uh, because of how important they are. But, but I think that's what makes a doctor truly uh, excellent. And that extends to your interactions with your colleagues, you know, being a friendly person to refer to, uh, having zero tolerance for bullying and really taking a team-based problem-solving approach. Uh, those are the kind of things that makes a doctor excellent in my mind. Yeah, I think communication is critical. Uh, personally, for me, two examples, um, two sort of, you know, quite sad examples. Uh, one of my colleagues passed away, uh, at a very young age from cancer. And uh, when he was diagnosed, he went through the treatment process and, and the palliative care process. Uh, and I was a, you know, relatively 
junior, senior, uh, I suppose I was a middle, middle grade registrar um, and I was watching him go through it and I was, you know, sometimes would, would go with him and, 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 you know, just sit in on consults because um, he needed that support. And the way, I mean, you could clearly tell when a doctor, and, and these are two, two doctors, I was a doctor, my, my colleague was a doctor, who went and saw another doctor uh, and the way that they just communicated to make him feel at ease, which mm. also made me feel at ease. And, of course, we had his family, his wife and um, uh, his his uh, immediate family, not 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 the young kids. Mm. Um, and they just wanted me as a support person sort of sitting in. And it was just fascinating. And one of the things that I learnt was that no matter how good you are clinically, no matter how much of a great operator you are, no matter how much of a great, you know, um, ICU doctor you are or a GP, whatever, if you can't communicate with your patients and their families in a way that they understand and they feel respected, um, then you've pretty much wasted the opportunity. Now, the second mm-hmm. example was uh, uh, one of my one of my work colleagues, unfortunately, had a very large heart attack, um, uh, a STEMI, uh, you know, which is pretty massive heart attack. And he was in ICU uh, for over 10 days and he was very close to going on ECMO because, um, you know, he wasn't doing too well and his wife, um, you know, got me in and, and, and I did visit him every day. This is pre-COVID. So you're allowed to go visit patients in ICU and and I'd go in every day. And even being a doctor, for me, ICU is not a specialty that I'm familiar with. Um, you know, I don't know all the vasopressors and inotropes and all that sort of stuff that you guys use. So, and of course, it was relatively... I wouldn't say confusing, but relatively overwhelming for me, seeing my colleague, you know, tubed on bed 11, much more so for his wife. So um, we sat in on family meetings. I sat in on family meetings and, um, you know, the team were there and explained it very clearly to his wife. And she'd sort of knock over and sort of say, hey, Dave, you know, what do you think? And all that sort of stuff. And I, I was just trying to explain, you know, as just a support person, and that whole experience, again, highlighted that if you don't communicate with people, um, then, you know, what's the point? Yeah. The whole point is for you to have an impact on people's lives, to communicate with them, to try and explain to them as best as you possibly can in in a good way and being fair and non-judgmental and honest. Mm. And one of the questions I asked my, my, my colleague's wife was, what was his level of function? Um, you know, we were considering putting him on ECMO. What is his level of function? You know, we're reaching kind of potential end of life stage here if he fails ECMO, all that sort of stuff. Mm. And um, it's a very direct question, but, uh, and I really did appreciate that doctor for asking that because there's no point fluffing around that topic because it changes your clinical decision based on the function of the patient. If the patient was not functional at home and the pre-morbid state wasn't great, then ECMO may not be an option. If the function was fantastic as it was for this particular colleague, um, then yes, absolutely, ECMO was an option. Um, luckily, he didn't have to have ECMO, and in fact, he made almost a full recovery. Um, so, communication. I think if you're a, if you're a junior healthcare worker, uh, communication with your colleagues, talking to them, and your patients is absolutely critical. Uh, I think Tyron did hit the nail on the head there. And if I may as well, that's that's a skill that is independent of your level of practice. 
which I think is really important as well. If you are a junior doctor or about to start as an intern, or again, if you're any member of the of the uh, the healthcare workforce, it really doesn't matter if you're a, a consultant or an intern or uh, a physiotherapist. Your communication with patients and with teams is not. Uh, tapered or, or, or stuck to your level of experience. So working on those skills, regardless of how far through your career you are, I think is only going to put you in better stead and make you a better clinician. Absolutely. Well said. Now, as a doctor and in ICU and, and uh, you know, in a, in a public health system, there are lots of challenges. Um, you know, I, I rant about the public health system all the time, but, you know, all in all, we've got a pretty decent system in Australia. It's not the best in the world. It's certainly better than some of the other countries that we hear about in the news. But there are some challenges. Uh, in your experience, what are some of the challenges that you face to provide healthcare to your patients or in general? Um, I, I think I'll break it up into, I suppose, ICU specifically and then, and then more broadly the, the, the healthcare service that we, that we find ourselves in. You know, ICU is a limited resource, uh, which to some extent protects against some but not all of the pressures that a lot of hospital teams face. Uh, for example, the emergency department, you know, doesn't really have the same um, degree of say over how many patients present to their service as you may have in an ICU. So I think that's that's the first thing that I think is a challenge is how do you how do you rationalize or how do you share what is a, a limited resource and then the other thing in ICU is the, the complexity and the and the team management that is a, a real challenge at times uh, and that's something that I you know I really admire my consultants for when I when I watch them work is that I see them as specialists in team management uh, in, in managing multiple teams uh, and I suppose keeping everyone on the same page about what's best for the patient and, and how do you move forward. So that, that's probably the ICU challenges. In terms of the, the healthcare system that we have at the moment, I think it's very clear to, to me that we have a really overstretched primary healthcare system uh, in terms of our, our GP workforce and, and where people can seek primary care. There's lots of reasons for that. I, you know, I don't think I'm saying anything new to suggest that the, the Medicare rebate freeze was incredibly detrimental uh, to being able to provide primary uh, health care. Uh, and that has flow-on effects for the entire system. If people can't get in to see a GP or they can't afford to see a GP, they end up in the emergency department. And usually they end up in a worse state than they would have been had they got that earlier intervention. So I, I think that's, that's the first thing uh, I would say about our... Um, healthcare uh, situation, th th there's other things that, you know, we need to double down on what is urgent care versus what is emergent care. Uh, I know there's been a number of health campaigns recently about that. Uh, again, I, I think of my colleagues that work in the ED and, and the, the number of people that present for what are not realistically emergency uh, presentations, but that usually is because they can't get into G to see a GP or they can't afford to see a GP. And then I think as well, you know, uh, 
the the large issue that I don't know if there is much for us to, to to change necessarily is the geographic issue, is that Australia is an enormous country where you know we're focused on coastal regional uh, coastal areas, uh, and so how do you uh, provide equivalent services to people that live rurally and regionally? And, and one of the best things that I did, and, and I highly recommend that any junior member of the healthcare profession uh, considers doing, is I went and worked rurally um, for for a number of months. Uh, when I was in far north Queensland uh, working out on the tablelands. And I think you learn so much about the disparity between what uh, urban and regional healthcare looks like and what you what you can achieve and what you're limited. Uh, and I think that that's something that we need to continue working on. And, you know, things like telehealth bridge some of those gaps, but really we need to be getting doctors into those areas. And I, I think one thing that, we have realized with the COVID situation and with border lockdowns is how much we undervalued our international medical graduates in particular and how much they did to provide some of those services to rural and regional Australia. Uh, and I, I hope that that's something that, that improves soon uh, with, with the borders opening and, and hopefully with more people coming. Yeah. I mean, it never surprises to amaze me when people say, you know, why are we in so much trouble at the moment? Well, if you have successive governments, both, you know, Labor and Liberal and all the other sort of sub-parties. If you have successful governments successfully reducing the healthcare budget on real terms, then and then you have workforce shortages due to, you know, international medical graduates unable to come into Australia due to COVID lockdowns, all that sort of stuff. And on top of that, you've got the tyranny of distance. And on top of that, you've got the Medicare rebate freeze, which affects, you know, GPs, but also affects, you know, uh, non-GP specialists as well, because their rebates have been frozen, pathology rebates have been frozen, radiology rebates have been frozen. The relatively uh, undersupply of nursing staff, because, you know, nurses do incredible work for very little pay, um, you know, in relation to um, other healthcare workers. So they're like, well, you know, we're burnt out. So I, I, I know at least two or three nurses who've actually left the profession and doing other stuff like cosmetics, for example, which, you know, pays significantly more. I know it's been in the media recently about all the wrong reasons, but, you know, people have other options, you know, um, and this inherent notion that a healthcare worker um, needs to, you know, like you said, Tyron, we have this sort of obligation, almost this sort of urge to self-sacrifice uh, for the benefit of the greater good. Although that's great, and although that we encourage everyone to sort of, you know, provide that little bit extra, it's almost normalised in healthcare. It's not normalised in other professions. You know, if I went to a lawyer and said, hey, can you provide me with an extra 15 minutes of advice for free? Um, they'd sort of turn around and say, well, no. Uh, if I did the same for IT consulting or a builder or um, or someone who comes and does um, tradespersons that comes and uh, does plumbing, etc. It wouldn't be acceptable, and nor should it be acceptable. It's not reasonable to ask people to do extra work for free, except it seems to be normalised and made reasonable in the healthcare sector, and it's just mind-boggling. I mean, I've had a patient tell me that um, because I'm a doctor, uh, it is my duty to focus on the patient over my own family. I was just like, well, you know, obviously I was very polite to the patient uh, and respectfully said, absolutely not. You know, uh, while I'm on shift, yes, my focus is on the patient. While I'm not on shift, when I'm at home, I'm not checking results. 
I'm not focusing on what comes through the door in the urgent care or the ED or the general practice, uh, and nor should I be. Because when I'm away from work, my number one priority is my family. And this notion that we have to self-sacrifice ourselves and also our families, and this goes across the board, whether it be doctors, nurses, allied health workers, um, dare I say, is rubbish. But um, I, yeah, yeah, I, I think I, as well, it's it's end, poor end, end rant, end rant. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's I think we've we've got a we've got a marketing problem essentially. You know, the Australian healthcare system is built on a social contract. It's a social contract that you know your ability to seek care shouldn't be dictated by your own wealth. But that social contract is between the people and the government, and I think often. We, we tend to see it as more so between people and the healthcare workforce themselves. At the end of the day, if the healthcare services are underfunded, that's not the fault of the healthcare staff. That's an issue for government. And I think, you know, in Australia where our healthcare system is state-based, uh, we often see a lot of uh, passing the buck, uh, mm. which is, I suppose, literally and figuratively between federal government and state governments about who's responsible for funding this. And I think if you ask the, the average patient who do they sh- think should be the people responsible for this, oftentimes they think it should be the, the doctors or the nursing staff uh, that are giving that extra time or, or making those sacrifices. And I think we have to remember that, you know, healthcare is a social contract that is between the people and the government in Australia, which has served us so well. You know, I would hate to see us move towards something like a, a US-based healthcare system, for example, uh, en masse. Um, but the constant, as you said, underfunding and, and white-anting, I suppose, uh, of, of the healthcare system in Australia, you know, we are going to have to face the fact that healthcare costs are blowing out. And that's before you consider things like inflation with an aging population, uh, with more regionalization as well. So I think this is something we're going to have to face at some point or another. Um, and I, I don't have an answer for it, unfortunately, other than to say- <laughs> We're I not going to solve the problem know, on this podcast we're episode. Not. We're um, not, but I, you know, people need to be involved in, in their politics as well. And if this is what they want to see an improvement in, then they need to vote like it. That's right. And, and healthcare workers need to be involved with, if you're involved in a union, your society, uh, for doctors, it's the AMA, Australian Medical Association. Uh, the nurses is the ANMF. You need to be involved with that um, because, you know, that's where potentially uh, lobbying and change happens. Uh, and we all come to work for one reason, and that is uh, for the benefit of our patients. That's what we come for. And I know, you know, people that come to work on time every day, um, and it's hard work what we do. Um, and, uh, you know, we need help and we need to support each other as best as possible. You did mention about the federal and state tussle. I think it's, I just want to highlight one thing before we sort of finish up is that, um, in healthcare for, for people that don't understand healthcare budgets, that's kind of called cost shifting. So to give you a real life example that happens every single day in Australia is that if a patient is, is goes to their GP or if they can't get into a GP and basically they need, you know, something done to them and, of course, the patient can't afford it because the Medicare rebates are frozen and if the patient then ends up in the emergency department as a result of that, um, that's called cost shifting. Whether that's voluntarily done or involuntarily uh, is different. So what that means is Medicare is a federally funded system and, as Tyron said, hospitals in Australia are state-funded so essentially what we've done for that patient is 
transfer their care from the federally funded Medicare, which should have been done at the GP practice, but for various reasons, double booked appointments, Medicare rebate freeze, uh, GPs, you know, can do ECGs but can't interpret them, which is madness. Um, you don't you don't get a rebate for interpreting, uh, and of course, the rebate is a patient's rebate. So that patient ends up in the emergency department, which is state funded. So essentially, what we've done there is we've taken yeah, it's all the same health tax uh, dollar. We've taken the burden from the federal system to the state system, and that sort of cost shifting uh, happens quite a bit, and that happens because of systems based issues, not because you know, individual patients or doctors just want to transfer the burden of care. Um, Mm. 99% of the time, it's an underlying systems issue. So um, that's my little rant and Tyron's rant, so to speak, or, you know, these are all important topics. You know, I mean, money is one thing, but I think, you know, we, we, Tyron, we had to go there. We had to go into the, you know, healthcare politics of it all. So we might just finish up the the interview and, and we've covered everything from, money to life advice to training um, to healthcare dollars and politics. Now, Tyron, you have the ear of thousands of listeners, healthcare workers, non-healthcare workers, and a special group of train drivers in WA. So so if you're listening, and I have mentioned this, uh, I'm really fascinated by those train drivers, and thank you very much for listening. What are your maybe three or four financial tips or things that people need to focus on um, today or as soon as possible. Yeah, pressure's on and uh, shout out to the WA train drivers. As a fellow Perth-born uh, boy myself, uh, I hope you're doing well over there. <laughs> um, in terms of uh, financial tips, uh, I think the first would be that, that knowledge is power and you should really know your financial situation and understand your income. Uh Check your payslip, please. Oh, I have yes. a number of colleagues that are years <laughs> into their they are years into their training and have never looked at a payslip. And it, I would hate to think of the lo- the lost income that has occurred over that period of time. Uh, know your expenses and and your financial goals as well, a- and pay particular attention to your debts because debt is designed to be scary to look at. It's designed to make you look away or feel shame about it. And that's what perpetuates it. And I think looking at it and making a plan to pay it off is really important. So that's my first tip is that knowledge is power. Have an understanding of your financial situation and goals. The second thing or the second tip I would say is that for me, personal finance is an intersection of money and psychology. And you need to address both sides. So you need to be deliberate. And that means you need to have a plan ideally from the outset and and early on, and you should stick to it as best as you can. And that includes planning for disaster. So things like an emergency fund. That plan is what gives you reassurance when the market crashes, uh, when when crypto goes south again, uh, when people get sick, when life happens. So being deliberate about your plan is the first thing. The second thing would be to be mindful of the urges that that come with personal finance and with investing, you know, the urge to quickly invest in something that everyone tells you is going to make you a millionaire, the urge to quickly sell when the market crashes and every article in the financial review is saying that, you know, the world's about to burn uh, financially speaking. So I think being mindful of those urges and, and not falling for them is, is the next thing that I would say. 
you know, FUDs come and go. Um, NFTs were a good example worth, you know, billions and billions of dollars are now down a massive amount in value. Um, but core principles are, are, are forever. Uh, so core principles of investing are really important to focus on. My third one, my third tip would be automate everything that you can. You are your own worst enemy when it comes to uh, allocating your money and make sure that you automate some fun into your budget as well. You know, budgeting has historically been seen as a restrictive practice. Uh, I think Glenn James has been a great example of talking about uh, budgeting being more of a uh, an allocating, uh, you know, rewarding yourself experience, making sure that you set aside some, uh, some money to enjoy. Uh, and then the fourth one would be when it comes to investing, as I think we've said a number of times throughout this podcast, you know, the, the best time to start was yesterday, but the second best time to start is today. So, so get onto it uh, because when it comes to particularly compound gains, you know, your key determinant is the amount of time uh, that you have. And that's something that you can't get back. Um, and if I can give one more, one bonus tip, if you don't mind, <laughs> uh, I would just say it's really important for people to remember that you're, Time itself has a value. It's it's really the only true currency that we have in life is our time. Uh, you know, we use the word spend a lot when we talk about our time. I spent my time doing this. I'm going to spend time doing this. And so if we're going to use words like that, we should treat it much like our money in that we should budget for it. We should allocate it and we need to be purposeful about how we do that. Uh, you know, allocate your time appropriately and remember to spend some of that time on vital things that bring you joy uh, and brings you closer to those that you love. Because it's very easy, particularly in healthcare, for you to dedicate a lot of your time uh, to your career. And I think it's important to remember the things outside of that, uh, that you, you shouldn't be starving of your time. Great, great tips and uh, fantastic to end on those. Um, just a couple of things. Um Medkit Scrubs, link will be in the show notes if you're interested. And Medical Money, the book, um, get it. I think it's from Amazon, Tyron, is that right? Yeah, so you can, you can go to the website, uh, themoneymd.co.co, uh, or you can just search for it on, on Amazon. So Medical Money is the book. Perfect. So get it. And thank you very much, Tyron, for joining us uh, on a very early Saturday morning and really appreciate your time. And uh, thank you very much for your wisdom and your knowledge. I mean, it's fascinating to have someone so young to be so, you know, energetic about money. I think it's really important. So thank you for what you do. And thank you very much for what you do in terms of your clinical practice and all your colleagues that do wonderful work uh, in the field of healthcare and intensive care medicine. Thank you for having me, Dev. It's been an absolute pleasure. Okay. That's all we have time for today. Um, now, just a couple of things. Please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or just leave a five-star review on all of the platforms if you wanted to. Um, and please leave a positive review because it does help the search algorithm for people that are interested in learning about money. Um, so I think we're up to about 350-odd ratings on Apple Podcast at the time of recording. Really want to get it up to 400 and 500 and also lots and lots of reviews. Um, so thank you very much for those that have already done that. Um, so please do that. And if you have any questions or comments, please don't hesitate to contact me via Facebook or Twitter. Uh, I'll try and get to every single question as best as I possibly can. So uh, thank you. And my name's Dev Rago. This is My Millennium Money Medical. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe.
We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.